So I grew up a, a child of the Dallas Cowboys. In the 90s, that was something to be proud of. We had three Super Bowls in four years, 92, 93, and 95. That was a, a, a team functioning at a very high level. Um, nowadays, it seems like no amount of coaching change or talent is going to bring us back to the Super Bowl until what happens? Until Jerry fires himself, which is never going to happen. <laughs> so we just suffer through. Uh, my point is, is that this was a well-functioning team. It was successful, and it was awesome to watch them do their job well. Uh, equally true is a dysfunctional team being unsuccessful and just miserable to watch. What's interesting is that this morning in our sermon in Mark 11, he's going to lay out for us two traits of a well-functioning local church. Well-functioning local church. And we're going to look at these two traits in a fascinating way. Mark lays them out by way of comparison to dysfunctional Israel. Mark's going to make it very clear about the dysfunctional nature of Israel in our chapter. And then Jesus is going to instruct us, through the author Mark, how we as a local church can be well-functioning, a well-functional church for a very specific purpose. So if you would turn to Mark 11, the way we are going to walk through this text is we're going we're gonna to look at two facets of Mark 11. The first is the triumphal entry. And then the second, we will see the Lord curse a fig tree and cleanse the temple. So those are our two steps as we look at these two traits for a well-functional local church. So the triumphal entry, this is our first point. And we're going to see that proclaiming Jesus as Savior and King is proper, but not always popular. Proclaiming Jesus is proper, but not popular. Uh, we're going to look in verses 1 through 11 in doing this. And as I read this, what I kind of want you to have in your mind is the, the flow. We'll see that Jesus enters Jerusalem, hailed by his followers as the Messiah. They're not going to hide that. They're going to hail him as the Messiah. But when Jesus enters his temple, his palace, if you will, he is completely ignored. So it's a great uh, contrast here. Beginning in verse 1, read with me through 11. We're in Mark chapter 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. 
And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Okay, stop right there with me. So in verse 1, we see that Jesus entered Jerusalem. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, this is a bit of a climactic moment. In the Gospel of Mark, this is the first time Jesus has entered Jerusalem. He has been in Galilee for the majority of his ministry. And then in chapters 8 through 10, he was on the way to Jerusalem. And now in chapter 11... He has finally entered Jerusalem. So this is a bit of a high point as far as the gospel of Mark goes. And we see here that in verse 7, they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. Now this is very significant. This isn't just Jesus choosing a certain mode of transportation. Uh, What we see here is Jesus deliberately fulfilling, at least partially, a prophecy of the Messiah from Zechariah 9. We see that he is deliberately entering into Jerusalem just as the prophecy said the king of Israel would enter Jerusalem during his time as the Messiah. And in doing so, this Messiah, according to Zechariah 9, would rule the world from sea to sea as king. So his followers, they seemed to understand that. There wasn't a disconnect, if you will. They got what he was doing. They connected the dots from his actions to the prophecy in Zechariah 9. And we see that with their exclamation in verses 9 and 10. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This is a quotation from Psalm 118. And in its original context, this psalm, is about a victorious king delivering victory for his people, the Israelites, over an enemy nation. So they're applying it in a very political, nationalistic sense, which in the original context, that's exactly what it was. Hosanna literally means save now or save us please. And again, it's, it's not in this save us from our sins sense. It's in this save us from our enemies, save us from... Rome, save us from Assyria, save us from these political enemies of Israel. And even that phrase, the coming kingdom of our father David, there in verse 10, uh, it has a global uh, focus on the king reigning from Jerusalem. So what's fascinating in all of this is Jesus did not rebuke them. He did not say, whoa, 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 this is not right. That's not the kind of king I am. No, they recognized the prophecy that he was partially fulfilling. They exclaimed him as the ruler of the world, and he triumphantly entered with that exclamation, with no rebuke. And what's more is Jesus didn't do this at just any old time in Jerusalem. He did it during the Passover feast. This is Sunday of the Passover feast here when Jesus enters 
And if you know anything about the festivals, this was the biggest. This was the most crowded time of the year in Jerusalem for Jesus to to enter in. And it recalls the liberation of Israel from slavery in Egypt. So he's making a huge splash. But what's the problem here? And I've been hinting at it all along. We know what happens next, right? Jesus doesn't enter into the temple, rally the troops, kick out the Romans, and rule the world from Jerusalem. So what's going on? Well, in chapters 8 through 10, on the way from Galilee to Jerusalem, chapters 8 through 10, three times he gives us his passion prediction. Three times he tells us, he told the disciples, look, I'm going to enter Jerusalem. The chief priests, the scribes, everyone's going to reject me. They're going to turn me over to the Romans, and they're going to kill me. But three days later, I will rise from the dead. Jesus must first go to the cross before he wears the crown. Suffering must take place before glory. So this is the triumphal entry. Why? Because Jesus has in his mind his victory over sin, death, and Satan. This must take place before he can establish a kingdom with the redeemed from which he rules the world. And we see this beautiful uh, summary of the event in 1045. If If it's convenient for you to look, 1045. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The king must first ransom his people before he can rule with them over the world. So Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 10, is what's called a split prophecy. Here Jesus is fulfilling verse 9 of that prophecy. He entered into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. And what's fascinating about that or interesting is in the ancient Near East, a donkey symbolized peace. The king was coming in peace. Verse 10 of Zechariah 9 is going to be fulfilled when the Lord returns, his second coming. And Revelation 19 tells us how he will return. It won't be on a donkey. He will return on a war stallion. This is the king that his followers recognized, but they didn't quite understand at that time this dual nature to his coming. First coming as a ransom for his people, second coming as a conquering king. So if you remember, I started this study saying that uh, proclaiming Jesus as the Savior and King is proper but not always popular. Read with me verse 11 one more time. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Do you know what happened when Jesus had finished his triumphal entry when he entered his palace, the the temple? Nothing. Nothing happened. Those who were called to serve him totally ignored him. What dishonor. What rejection. What pride. 
So scholars note that compared to the other gospel accounts, Mark carefully crafted the retelling of the triumphal entry in order to give us, the readers, pause to think through our assumptions about following Jesus. In other words, will you unashamedly proclaim who Jesus is, the Savior and King, even if it's not popular, even if it will not earn you gain in society or amongst those who are powerful? Many of us have family members or friends that just don't quite understand why we are so passionate about this this king who died for us, who we claim will return, who we believe will return. After sharing with them over and over, the rejection just seems to mount up. And we become quiet, not just with them, but with others. We're tired of bearing that rejection, of being the one sticking out. But this is what the Gospel of Mark is showing us. It's what he is instructing us in this, is that this is the proper response to the king. We proclaim him unashamedly for who he is. But we need to be prepared that it's not popular, that oftentimes we'll be in these situations where people will just kind of ignore us or reject us. That's the way it is in this sinful world. So I remember growing up um, playing sports as a kid, when we would roll into our crosstown rival, we would roll in bandwagon style with, you know, uh, all the colors flying on our car, the blue and white, go Panthers sprayed onto the car, and we'd show up with cowbells, and our parents would, would be there. They'd be celebrating. They'd be supporting us. And so my point is, is that as we enter into those types of situations, the crosstown rival type of situation, we didn't cover up. We weren't afraid. We weren't ashamed, even though we were the minority. We were proud. My parents were proud to support me. So my point is not necessarily for us to be obnoxious in proclaiming who Jesus is to others. That, that does not, it's not winsome. But just as we were not ashamed at supporting our local sports teams, We shouldn't be ashamed of the Lord. We shouldn't hide our testimony simply because we are in a setting where we're the minority. So our first point here, this this first trait, if you will, of a well-functioning local church is one in which we proclaim who Jesus is, the Savior and King. And we do so unashamedly. And we do so publicly. So let's move to our next point where we're going to look at the barren temple and the withered tree. The barren temple and the withered tree. And here we're going to be focusing on fruit-bearing communities. Okay? Fruit-bearing communities are places of prayer based on faith and forgiveness. Fruit-bearing communities are places of prayer based on faith and forgiveness. And in this section, uh, verses 12 through 25, we're going to see a classic Mark sandwich. And what I mean by that is he's going to open in verses 12 through, 20, or verses 12 through 14 with judgment on a fig tree. And he's going to cut off that narrative and he's going to jump to Jesus cleansing the temple. And then he's going to revert back to the judgment on the fig tree. And each of those stories is aligned in such a way that they inform the meaning of the other. So it's by design. And in these verses, 
the Lord will judge the temple, symbolized by the withering fig tree for being a barren place of business rather than a vibrant international house of prayer. The temple had become dysfunctional. It had become a place of business rather than a vibrant house of international prayer. So read with me verses 12 through 25. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus said to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Okay, right off the bat... I want to focus on this question. Why would Jesus curse a tree that had no fruit when it was out, out of season? This has been something that perplexes people very often. So the time of this passage, this triumphal entry, was during the Passover, as I said. The Passover occurred in mid-April. Okay, so we're in mid-April here. In the Mideast, or excuse me, the Near East, fig trees begin to produce an edible bud in uh, March. So in March, fig trees produce an edible bud, and Jesus is here in mid-April. And after this bud forms, leaves form around it to protect it. And so it's perfectly reasonable for Jesus approaching this tree to desire and expect to see this edible bud in mid-April if they're supposed to form in mid-March or in March, and especially if there's leaves already there. So these buds were common food for peasants, and they were, uh, it was allowed for those passing by to pick them and eat them. But what's even more, the, the spiritual significance is in this is, in the Old Testament, it was very common for a fig tree to symbolize Israel. So if you remember, I said, we're going to look at a sandwich structure here. So here's the first layout. And then we're going to go to Jesus cleansing the temple, which is going to help flesh out the meaning of the fig tree, supposed to being in uh, an edible bud, but nothing available. So, in short, 
as we'll see, the promising but unproductive fig tree here, it symbolized Israel's spiritual barrenness. Spiritual barrenness. Despite the fact that God had covenanted with her to be a kingdom of priests. And this is very ironic because Passover recalled God delivering Israel from Egypt so that they might be a kingdom of priests for the nations. So that God might use them to draw the nations to them in order to know and worship the one true God. Looking in verses 15 through 19, Mark's going to make this clear. Why Jesus cleansed the temple. Why Jesus cursed the fig tree. What this means. He's going to highlight three groups who were doing business in the temple. The first in 15 is those who sold and those who bought. Now the selling and buying in the temple was so that people could buy ritually pure animals for sacrifices. It was one of convenience. In verses 15, we also see money changers. Now in this time, there were three currencies going around. There was the Roman currency, the common Greek currency, and the Jewish currency. The temple would only accept the Jewish currency. So again, the money changers were there as a way of conveniently exchanging money. And then finally, we see in verse 16 that apparently the temple had become a shortcut for merchants passing through from one side of Jerusalem to the other. What's the big deal in all of this? These money changers, these salesmen, uh, and this highway all pass through the court of the Gentiles, the court of non-Jews who were coming to the temple in order to worship the one true God. Israel was more focused on business than actually being a light to the nations. They had filled up the court of the Gentiles in such a manner that it was chaotic. There was no room for the Gentile to come and worship. And what that tells us is the temple and with it Israel had become dysfunctional. Dysfunctional. They were no longer operating according to God's design for them. Okay, let's look at the last section here because the last section is in light of the judgment that Jesus has placed on Israel. He's judging them because of their, their dysfunctionality. And now he's going to instruct us, his community of followers, who are now a kingdom of priests. And we are. Peter tells us that. We are now operating as a kingdom of priests. And Jesus is going to instruct us how to function properly as his kingdom of priests. In light of the fact Israel was dysfunctional and God judged them. So this is careful instruction for us. And it's dealing with fruit bearing. Fruit bearing. Verse 20 says, As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. This is a foreshadowing of a very literal judgment God placed on Israel for being dysfunctional. In AD 70, Rome leveled the temple. In AD 135, Rome sacked all of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem has been totally destroyed. The temple has been completely removed. And Jesus is 
cursing of the fig tree here is a picture of that. They withered to the roots. In verses 22 through 25, Jesus is going to instruct us now, in light of this fact, my followers, who are now the kingdom of priests, the church, the local church, the universal church, here is how you will bear fruit. Here is how you will properly function as a light to the world. And in bearing fruit, it's, it's more than just good character. That's not what we're primarily focusing on here. What we're focusing on is being used by God to draw people to a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus. God desires for unbelievers to be reconciled to Him through faith in Christ. And He uses us, His kingdom of priests, if you will, in doing such. There's two elements that we're going to focus on here in regards to how we bear fruit, and it's wrapped up in prayer. Prayer is the vehicle for fruit-bearing, and there's two elements of prayer that make it effective. Faith and forgiveness. Faith and forgiveness. First, let's look at faith in verse 22. Jesus says, have faith in God, verse 22. And then in verse 23, he pairs it with this very unusual idea of casting a mountain into the sea. It's very perplexing. What this teaches us is the absolute necessity of faith in God in order to be a community that bears fruit. Faith is necessary in order to be a community that bears fruit. Why? Because in a Jew's mind... The casting of a mountain into the sea was something only God can do. It was a metaphor for the impossible that only God could make possible. And in the context of our passage here, it's us bearing fruit. It's us being functional. It's us being those who share the truth with others that brings them the forgiveness of sins, the gift of eternal life, something in our own strength is just as impossible of picking up a mountain and throwing it into the sea. The second component that Mark pairs with faith here is forgiveness. And before I move on, what I mean by faith is, it's faith that God is good, that He will use you, that He's true to His word. And it's faith that He is the Almighty. He is powerful enough to bring even the hardest of heart unbelievers into faith in Christ. It's relying on Him. It's this active dependency upon His goodness and His power, and not ourselves. Forgiveness. This is the second element of effective prayer for fruit-bearing. I'm going to read verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Again, this is another perplexing phrase of Jesus. But what Mark is teaching us here in the context of this passage of fruit-bearing, of being a functional body of believers, is the importance of mutual forgiveness in order to be used by God for bearing fruit. Mutual forgiveness is essential in order for God to use Bethel Bible Church to be a vehicle 
to offer forgiveness to others in Christ's name. In the strictest sense, God will not listen to our community prayers as Bethel Bible if we are a community characterized by unforgiveness. If that's who we are as Bethel, completely unforgiving towards the other, then who are we to be used by God to proclaim a message of forgiveness? We are essentially telling God that Christ's death for the forgiveness of the sins of my brother or sister, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. The grudge that I have against them, the sin that they have committed against me is too great for the blood of Christ to atone. Side note on that, often, this is totally unrelated to the context of the passage, but it's applicable. Forgiving ourselves is one of the hardest things to do. But the same principle is true that no matter how tight you cling on to that sin, whatever it might be that you just can't forgive yourself over, know that the blood of Christ, that the atoning sacrifice of Christ is great enough for you to just give it to God and trust that he has forgiven you. So in short here, a community filled with unforgiveness, which I'm thankful to say Bethel is not this sort of community, but a community filled with unforgiveness is similar to Israel in that they would be dysfunctional. So in these, these two points, um, these two elements, faith and forgiveness, we see in verse 24 they come together in prayer. Mark brings them together in 24 and 25. In 24 and 25 he says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. 25, and whenever you stand praying, Forgive. So it's in these two verses he brings faith and forgiveness together in prayer. Prayer is the vehicle for which God uses us as a local body to function as fruit bearers, which the temple had totally forsaken. Verse 24, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Look, this is God's assurance to us, okay? This is God's assurance to us that as you pray with godly motives according to God's will, he will answer your prayer. This is not about mustering up enough faith for God to hear your prayer and respond. No, this is about praying in accord with God's word, with godly motives, and he's assuring us, I, I will answer that prayer. Pray the word of God. Pray the word of God over yourselves, over your family. Pray the word of God over others. These are prayers with godly motives in accord to God's word. And he hears those. And it will be done for us. So this is wrapping up our, our second section here. That the second trait of a, a functional, a well-functioning local church is fruit-bearing prayer based on faith and forgiveness. And as we saw in our first section, a first trait is a functional church, a well-functioning church, is one in which we proclaim the Lord unashamedly, publicly, knowing that it's proper. And who cares if it's not always popular? This is the king who will return on a war stallion. We're on the right side. So the ministry I want to highlight for us if the Lord has stirred in your heart, okay, this is, this is who we are as a local church, this is what I want to do. 
I'm thankful to say that Bethel does have an outreach team. Okay, we have an outreach team. We have an outreach team that regularly prays for unbelievers and reaches out to unbelievers with the gospel, that, that marries these things together, these, these two traits of a functional church. It's led by Josh A. Duddle, and he's here. He's in the foyer, and he would love to help you get plugged in. And this outreach team is not just for individuals with a bunch of free time. Uh, there's ministries available for families also. So as we desire to be a community that functions well, come find me, come find Josh. Let's build up this outreach team so that we can be the light to these unbelievers, so that we can be men and women, a local church that God uses to do the impossible, to bear fruit. Would you pray with me? Lord, we love you. Thank you for the eternal life we have in our Lord Jesus. Thank you that he is triumphant, uh, that though the world sees him as someone who simply was rejected and died, we know who he is, that he died for our sins, that we might become your people, ransomed from bondage, that we now might be your people who bear fruit, who proclaim who the Lord is, and we do so with prayer based on faith and forgiveness. Thank you for your spirit who, who teaches us these things and who gives us opportunity to exercise these things. So it's, it's in his strength we pray. It's in his strength we minister. And so I ask your blessing upon us, Lord, as we seek to be your people, as we seek to be people used by you for your good purposes. I thank you for Bethel Bible Church. I pray that as we band together, uh, that we would make your name great, all by your strength, all for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.